Hi there. Welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. As you get a lay of the land about how modern contemplatives teach, you'll notice that a lot of them tie contemplative practice in with basic wellness, as if our spiritual practice and like our exercise and eating habits work in a virtuous cycle together. So well, so far as I know, the great ancient Christian mystics kept it strictly spiritual, and powerfully so. I have enjoyed seeing the world through this modern lens as well, as if my health and happiness is not divorced from my spiritual growth. So in this episode, we'll look at a bit more of the advice we get about what healthy aging looks like in this light, which is a subject of ever-renewing interest to me at this stage in my own life. I will start out with a striking story about the 24th oldest person in the country, which taps into one of the biggest contemplative insights in a way I think will encourage you. And then we'll touch on insights from brain research and from the five areas in the world with the most centenarians. We will learn about things like telomeres and emotion contagion and positive stress. And we'll close with a look at nine lifestyle habits that we're told give us the best chance at a long and happy old age. I love this stuff. Let me briefly mention that if you'd be interested in actually connecting with actual human beings from various parts of America and beyond, we do have three weekly groups you are welcome to poke your head in on to see if they might delight and encourage you as they do for many people. You can learn more about them at journey-on.net, journey-on.net, and you can also learn there how to check them out. And if you like the podcast, we'd love it if you could take a moment to give it a good rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to it. All right, let's take a look together at On Wellness and Healthy Aging. So my hometown newspaper, the Los Angeles Times, had a recent column called The Secret to a Long Life. Curiosity, says Maury, who has now survived two pandemics, by a columnist named Steve Lopez. It's about a 108-year-old man named Maury Markoff, which is not the Tuesdays with Maury guy, another old Maury. But Mr. Markoff is the 24th oldest person in the U.S., who's three years younger than the oldest. He'd expected to die in the 1918 pandemic when he ran a 104-degree temperature, and his older brother did die in that pandemic. His wife died at 103, so they had a very long life together, and he's picked up lots of new hobbies and activities since he turned 100. So we get this. Not long after I made their acquaintance, writes Mr. Lopez, the Marcos were exploring downtown Los Angeles by bus when they met a fellow passenger who happened to be the owner of an art gallery. Maury mentioned that he used to own an appliance repair shop in Hollywood, and in his spare time, he made sculptures out of scraps of metal. The gallery owner took a look at his work, was flabbergasted by the quality, and hosted Maury's first-ever art exhibit at her, at her Chinatown gallery. Maury was 100 at the time. For his next project, Maury worked day and night on a memoir. He called it Keep Breathing, which was his long-running answer to anyone who asked him the secret of a long life. Maury, a New York native, sold his new book at a booth at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. He was 103. One day, my late colleague Gary Friedman and I were visiting the Marcos when Friedman learned that Maury had been an amateur photographer for decades. Maury brought out his photo albums, and Friedman, an ace photographer himself, said Maury's black and white images belonged in a museum. His joy of life and his curiosity, that's really kept him alive, plus good genes, said Steve Markoff, who I believe is his son. Everything to him is exciting. How did this happen? How did that happen? So then the column talks about having had ups and downs for Maury in his 75-year marriage, but how in the end, even after her passing, he is devoted to her. And that this is a quote. You are my girl, he sang to the woman he refers to as Betsy. 
I wake up in the morning to greet the newborn day. I can't wait to see you and say, Betsy doll, I love you. I love you. So there's a story about Maury Markov. And you will recognize some contemplative themes we look at, like the power of curiosity that we've talked about recently. More and more research focuses on the power of the sort of practice we look at here in terms of keeping a healthy brain. So we learned about things like telomeres and brain gyrification. Telomeres are the caps on our chromosomes, which as we age tend to shorten. We want them long. And things that will shorten our telomeres are things like toxic stress and things like that. But we're told contemplative practice can actually re-lengthen telomeres that have shortened. I mean, one of the big questions that comes up in this aging research is the surprising one of what causes aging at all. You would think that would have been figured out by now, but apparently one hypothesis is that our genes can't keep reproducing uh, as we get older, and that happens somewhat because our telomeres get short, which then screws up our DNA, which keeps our DNA from reproducing, which means we, we age. But if we can keep our telomeres longer, we stay healthier, et cetera, things like that. And contemplative practice apparently is quite helpful in doing that because it gets us behind all our stresses and concerns and things like that. It keeps us still, and that sort of watching is actually quite healthy. It also keeps our brain denser. Brain gyrification just means we kind of want our brain to be dense, like a crumpled up piece of paper that's really dense as opposed to kind of flattened out. And apparently the practice we do here helps with that. And talking about Maury Markov and his curiosity tied in with that that the more curious we stay, the idea, right, isn't it remarkable that he is getting a showing of his art for the first time when he's 100 years old and he's getting his first book displayed at the LA Times Festival of Books when he's 103. That sort of curiosity, that sort of constant exploration, that sort of openness to this moment, which is so central to contemplative practice, has turned out to keep him young and keep his brain alive and, you know, doing well. That's all kind of standard thought and I think powerfully put forward in this story. So if toxic stress shortens our telomeres, we are told, though, there is a type of stress which is actually good for us, which is news to me. And that they call, the researchers call positive stress, apparently a very important thing also to keep in mind as we age. So positive stress would be something like exercise, right? If we just stay in our chair, in our couch, and don't exercise, we don't have stress on our body, but it's actually not good for us. We need a certain sort of positive stress. And apparently that can apply not just to things like exercise, but to things like life. So having things to do when we get up in the morning, having challenges is positive stress. And even toxic stress, we get taught, can be reframed as positive stress and contemplative practice can be very helpful in that respect. So we've got some big overwhelming challenge at our job, let's say, and it's so stressful. Well, with contemplative practice, we can get still, we can notice it, we can get kind of behind uh, the waterfall of that stress and just be the observer of that stress. And in doing it, we can reframe it. So we can say, wow, what an opportunity I have here to either fail and then try something new, and maybe I'll fail again, but I'll try something new and I'm going to learn and I'm going to grow. That reframing can take what has been toxic stress and can make it positive stress, which has been really provocative for me. So Another thing we learn is that the sort of practice we do here helps us navigate a world of what the researchers call emotion contagion. So we are told that wherever we are, we tend to take on the emotions of people around us. So our families obviously be the most 
common way in which this could happen, but also in work environments or other settings, that if people around us are sunny, cheerful people, it helps us become sunny and cheerful. Their emotions can come to us. But obviously, the reverse can be true, too. If they are stressed out or are negative or they have their own toxic stress, they're processing, it can pull us into that world. It's human. We all tend to go that direction. And so when that happens, if it's negative emotion contagion, it shortens our telomeres. In other words, somebody else is struggling in our family and we kind of take on their stress. It's killing us in a weird way. So what do we do? Well, we're told, hey, contemplative practice is very helpful in that. Get behind that waterfall too, where we become mindful. And so someone's in our world and they've got some toxic stress or some whatever negative emotion that we're taking on. And rather than just feeling it or feeling mad that we have to feel it or why can't they do better or have it rather than kind of caught up in the tumult of our own reactions to that, um, we're now in a position where we can just notice it. Like, oh, I see that I'm reacting to so-and-so's negative emotion. I see that. Check that out. And we can notice it and let it pass. Uh, Like a cloud going through our clear blue sky, we can notice it and it will pass. It will drift away. And then our own telomeres stay long. It's sort of like the airline thing of if you're with a small child and the oxygen things drop in an airline, you put your own mask on first so you can help the small child. As we don't take on emotion contagion, it actually gives us the position both not to be killing ourselves, but at the same time also as we have more strength and thriving, that we can actually be present to the person there without taking it on. Um, They um, talk about one thing we mentioned uh, recently when we mentioned this meditation teacher's encouragement upon walking, seems to me upon waking up, to put her hand over her heart and say, I love you, which I thought was so charming and sort of feminine, I guess. I don't know. But apparently we're told that that actually releases dopamine, the idea of putting your hand over your heart. And our cortisol is affected right at the start of our day by things like that sort of gesture. And that can empower us into a key marker of aging well. And this was a surprising one to me, that it was as important as it was. I've heard now two different lectures on this one thing as being so important, which is feeling purpose in life day by day. We get told that actually feeling a sense of life purpose has more of an impact on longevity than just about anything else. And more, for instance, than obesity or exercise, that just feeling purpose is more important. So in the spirit of uh, this columnist honoring Maury Markov, a number of the folks I've been reading talk about the power of whole societies that honor people as they age, as he was honoring Maury Markov. A positive view of aging helps people age well. Cultures that value older people uh, have collectively longer lives. They have less dementia. So just that sense that older people, it's great. It's good to be around them. We're glad for that. We find that older people then wake up with more sense of purpose, that they're not pointless, that they're getting up to do something, even if it's to care for the grandkids and to have a fun time with them. That sense that you're doing something is indicative of longer life. Again, back to Maury Markov. At age 100, he's doing a show of his artwork. At age 103, he's he's publicizing his book at a major book festival, and apparently he's working on a sequel now. That sense that I've got something, I'm curious, I'm learning, I've got new things in front of me is apparently very indicative of aging well. So I think of all that stuff as I think about the findings of these so-called blue zones. Have you heard about these things? So National Geographic, some years back, um, discovered or took on the research of a guy named Dan Butner, And what he was looking at was the 
places in the world with the most centenarians, the people who live to 100 years of age or longer. And I think he was particularly looking at male centenarians. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's just more unusual for men to live that long. And he discovered there were these five places, one of which is in California, um, which were known for that. And then he did research on why, what do these places have in common? Are they all different? And he came up with nine kind of traits for healthy aging, which I will lay on you now. And um, and I'll close with one of his stories of another centenarian, or maybe centenarian. It's not quite clear how old this person was when they died, but quite close to it being a centenarian that was had kind of a charming story related to his research. And then we'll tie things together maybe from a contemplative perspective or just from a wellness perspective. So these are the five blue zones he looked at. Sardinia, Italy, as I'm remembering, I read the book about this, not just hearing a lecture about it some time ago. And as I remember, Sardinia was known for like people who would do like work in wineries and things like that, vineyards, and they would climb hills. It was very hilly. And so part of what made things go well there is one, they had a Mediterranean diet, which is the big healthy diet, right? And a lot of olive oil. And also they'd exercise because they would be climbing these hills. Um Sardinia, Italy, first place he looked at. Okinawa, Japan. We'll look at some key interesting stuff in Okinawa in a minute, which was fascinating. Nicoya, Costa Rica. Loma Linda, California. We'll hear more about why Loma Linda was such a big deal. And Ikaria, Greece. And we'll have a big story from Ikaria, Greece as well. So here are the nine habits that that, that, uh, Dan Butner said they had in common. First, they move naturally throughout their life. So these people didn't go to gyms. They probably weren't in cultures that supported gyms necessarily, but what they did do is they moved. So we hear in Loma Linda, Loma Linda was notable because it's a gathering of Seventh-day Adventist people, and a lot of people moved to Loma Linda, so that community with one another, they often lived in proximity to each other. They would do natural walking. They would go to, you know, hang out at the local coffee shop and play games with one another. They had religious practice in common. They had healthy eating because uh, Seventh-day Adventists had healthy eating plans, I believe, with no caffeine or alcohol. So anyway, they moved naturally throughout their life. They have a sense of purpose. Remember, having a sense of purpose when you wake up is more indicative of longevity than anything, apparently. And so they have a sense of purpose. So in all age groups, there was no real retirement in all five of those communities. So they move naturally throughout their life. They have a sense of purpose. They know how to downshift. So there were there were structures set up in each of these five communities for knowing when your work is done and for having kind of rituals about now is when we do family events, or now is when we go to church, which they talk about there too, or now is when we do whatever. There was a there was structured downshifting, which you think could tie into things like toxic stress and positive stress. So they move naturally throughout their life. They have a sense of purpose. They know how to downshift. They eat less. So in Okinawa, there was apparently a practice that Mr. Butner discovered that was taught from very early on that you stop eating when you're 80% full. Um, and that in almost all these cultures, maybe in all of them, the smallest meal of the day was dinner. They learned that people have big breakfasts, slightly less big lunches, and then smallest of all dinners had the most healthy eating. So they eat less. They eat mostly plant-based diets in these cultures. They drink alcohol regularly but moderately. And so uh, the, the thing that's been studied more than anything in, in studying how alcohol affects our health has been red wine. So obviously alcoholism is toxic and terrible and and the worst. Um, But moderate but regular red wine drinking, which means one to two glasses a day, 
seems to be predictive of longer life and is often part of a Mediterranean diet and it's got antioxidants and things like that. Uh, in the studies that they've done of these five blue zones, people who drink moderately but regularly live longer than anybody else. Obviously, then they live longer than heavy drinkers, for sure, but they also live longer than non-drinkers, so take it for what you will. They belong to a faith-based community, so I've been alluding to that. Um, and you kind of wonder why a faith-based community would be so predictive of longer life, but you can imagine it gives purpose, often through volunteer opportunities. It relieves stress because you're talking about the most important things in a comforting way. It provides community. Um, and it provides purpose, so all things that are very indicative of a longer life. So again, move naturally throughout their life, have a sense of purpose, know how to downshift, eat less, eat mostly plant-based diets, drink alcohol regularly but moderately, and belong to a faith-based community. They put family first. So these are all cultures where aging parents and grandparents live nearby, and so family is a big part of it. They commit in these cultures generally to a life partner, and they invest in their kids. That is apparently very indicative of a longer life. There were studies that talked about healthy marriages being very predictive to men aging longer. Healthy marriages apparently were neither predictive nor non-predictive of women. It was neutral. But what they were predictive of was satisfaction in life. So that's still a good thing. Um, anyway, we're told in the, um, you may recall some months back, uh, I did a podcast on the Harvard Grant Study of Aging. The biggest ever study of its type. And it talked about how uh, one's health in a marriage, if you're in a marriage at age 50, was the most predictive thing to healthy aging at 80. So somehow those those skills and that relationship, very important thing if you if you can have it. And they have social circles that support healthy and supportive behaviors. This is really interesting. So this is where Okinawa comes in. Okinawa, by the way, as I remember when I, I read the book some years ago, would talk about things like diet was also very helpful, their plant-based diet, that because of poverty issues and post-war issues, Okinawa for generations had as a staple sweet potatoes because I guess they grew naturally in Okinawa. And so they interviewed this one centenarian woman who says, you know, she never wants to eat another sweet potato the rest of her life because she ate so many of them, but apparently they're like super healthy. And so that was part of it. But also Okinawa, as I recall, was known for these groupings of people they called, I'm sure I'll mispronounce this, moes. Um, I used to pronounce it moais, but I've now heard it pronounced moais, M-O-A-I-S, moais, um, which are small groups of people that you would get to know when you were kids. So you'd have four or five, six friends in a little grouping, and you would stick together the rest of your life. And so when you're 100, whoever's left, you're still in a moe. And apparently that's really predictive of healthy aging, that stable community going through things from thick and thin that are outside of your family units. Um, Loma Linda was known for this trait, having social circles that support healthy and supportive behaviors because so many people there were there because they were Seventh-day Adventists. So there's a university there, Loma Linda University, has done all the studying of what are the what's the impact of having folks together for this period of time. And we get told that um, part of it is just regular groupings. You go to church together, you go play dominoes together at the local uh, at the local coffee shop, um, and of course you have healthy eating habits. So the sense of a community that's stable is apparently quite helpful. Uh, in one of our online groups, when we were talking about this, I said, well, let's be our moe together, um, and we'll see if we can pull that off. So a couple of stories here, maybe one more story that I thought was really charming before we just wrap up with a few points together. 
This is, again, from the Blue Zones people. So Dan Butner, who's our main researcher there, he had a brother who alerted him to this one interesting story of a guy, I'm sure I will mispronounce this Greek man's name, Stomatis Moriaitis. He was a Greek war veteran who was living in Boynton Beach, Florida. And we pick up his story in 1976. He was in his mid-60s. He's feeling shortness of breath. So he goes to a doctor to find out what it is, and it turns out it's late-stage lung cancer. He's given less than a year to live. And so he tries to figure out, what, what should I do? And so he decides that he's going to move back to his native home of one of the Blue Zone places, Ikaria, Greece, because he wants to die with his ancestors. That's the reason he does it. And he, go, he moves back. He's tremendously ill, so he's in bed most of the time, except he will go to church weekly with friends that he grew up with. And those friends he grew up with start coming each afternoon to drink a bottle of wine together with him and to reminisce. Well, day after day this happens, he starts feeling healthy enough to work the family vineyard in the afternoons. So he gets out a little bit. At night, then, he realizes he's healthy enough to walk to the local tavern to play, yes, dominoes with his friends. He starts feeling better. So he'd been a builder in Florida, and so he rebuilds the family home on his spare time. And then he also starts working the family vineyard, and he personally rebuilds it to the point that it produces 400 gallons of wine a year. In 2012, what's that, 40-something years uh, later, Dan Butner contacts this guy because he hears about him through his brother. And he says, well, what happened to the cancer? And this guy, Mr. Moriarty, says, it just went away. And so because he'd been contacted by Dan Butner about this, he travels back to Florida to talk to his doctors from that earlier era to try to figure out how he'd gotten better. But he never got his answer because every single doctor had died. So Mr. Moriartis died in 2013. He was listed as being 98 years old, though family records say he was 102. Um, so obviously, who knows what to think about that story. But what it tells me is there's a sort of wellness, which is a little more mysterious than just, you know, whatever, eat well and exercise. Not that eating well and exercise is not part of wellness. Clearly it is. And it's in those blue zone habits, right? They eat less, they eat mostly plant-based diets, et cetera. And uh, they move naturally throughout their life. But some of these broader things of being still to your environment, and so Mr. Moriartis's case, this idea of community, that just being around love, being around care has tremendous power, and that he picked up purpose, that he, he goes back and suddenly he has a purpose with his family home, with this vineyard, and with this community. And he has a faith-based experience that suddenly surges back to life. There's a sort of generalized wellness that can be much more mysterious than maybe we give it credit for. And going back to Maury Marcos' opening story, it seems to tie in to an openness, to a curiosity that can open up new possibilities, give you purpose in life, perhaps can take toxic stress and make it into positive stress and lengthen your telomeres and all the things that it does. All right, well, a few thoughts on uh, wellness and healthy aging for your day-to-day. -day. I've really enjoyed thinking about the stuff, and I've been putting the stuff into practice. It's been really fun for me. So I'm sure we'll be talking more about that holistic sense of how contemplative spirituality is tied with more than just a spiritual moment, but really with our whole lives. All right, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Mm -hmm.